0: Good morning, Redemption. My name is Josh Butler, and we are wrapping up our series in Exodus today. Uh, The first half of Exodus, we focused on God drawing his people out of Egypt, the land of sin and slavery and death. And now in the second half of Exodus, we've been looking at God uh, drawing us in, drawing his people into life with him, union with him and his kingdom. As we mentioned last week, we are uh, covering the daunting task of 21 chapters in two weeks uh, because of recent events. And next week, I want to highly encourage you to be back here. Ricardo is going to be here for his farewell sermon, and you do not want to miss that. Uh, and then from there, we'll be jumping into Advent, the Advent season. Uh, but for today, yeah, we are going to be looking at Exodus uh, and trying to kind of summarize. Rather than speed read through uh, almost two dozen chapters, uh, we're, gonna, we've, we're picking some high points to try and look at the big picture of what's happening in this section of Exodus as a whole. So last week, we focused on how God has a name and we have his presence, uh, that God has given us his name, revealing himself to us, and that we are, we've are we been given his presence in life with him. And this week, we want to look at the covenant, the nature of covenant, as God enters this covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. We're going to be in Exodus 19, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Now, covenant is a word that we don't often use much today. Uh, But it means basically it's like a formal agreement that two or more people enter into together, like marriage. And indeed, marriage is the most significant image. It's the main image that the Bible uses when it's talking about this covenant of Israel with God at Mount Sinai that we're looking at today. And this is significant, this marital imagery. It means that this scene and this, this second half of Exodus, that this is not just a law story. It's a love story. Now, when we're reading through the second half of Exodus, we can see a whole bunch of laws, and, um, and they're good, they're a part of the covenant, but we can start to think that, man, this is just a story about laws, like God's just throwing out a bunch of rules and regulations to try and keep them happy, and we can miss sometimes the bigger context that when we zoom out, we see that it's also a love story. So one of the things that we want to look at today is how the law and the love are related. Uh, the title for the sermon this morning is Law of Love. And to recap, before we jump in, just where we've been, uh, like any classic fairy tale, like this story of the Exodus, it begins with the beloved in bondage. I was a husband to them, God says in Jeremiah 31, when I led them by the hand to deliver them and lead them out of Egypt. The story of Exodus, it begins with the beloved in bondage with Yahweh's bride captive in chains. Pharaoh treats her like any bad boyfriend, uh, seeking more for what he can get from her than what he can give to her. And Egypt is depicted as it's an enslaving empire. It's depicted as the power of the dragon. And so God enters into the dragon's lair. Yahweh enters in and he confronts the captor. He breaks the shackles. He tears down the recalcitrant enemy in order to deliver his people out of bondage. And as they exit the fortress of Egypt and cross the Red Sea moat and make it outside the gates out into the wilderness, God doesn't just drop his bride out in the wilderness with a road map to find her own way home. No, he brings her to the mountain for a wedding. That's where we find ourselves in in Exodus 19. So let's read there, starting in verse 3. It says, While Moses went up to God, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All right, well, this scene we find is a wedding on a mountain. God brings Israel to Mount Sinai for a wedding. Uh, This is where Israel enters into covenant with God as a nation. As a nation, there have been other covenants with Abraham and individuals in the past, but now this is the point where Israel as an entire nation is entering into union with God in covenant. And it's interesting, Jewish wedding ceremonies historically were actually modeled on this scene. We'll look at a number of elements today from Jewish wedding ceremonies that were modeled on the scene at Mount Sinai because they saw part of the purpose of marriage between a husband and a wife was actually to reflect in their union together uh, the d- kind of relationship that God desires with his people, of commitment, of uni- unity, of fidelity, of life on life together. So this scene starts with a proposal. God pops the question. Like, like in verses 4 to 6, he begins with a, a declaration of both what he has done and what he is promising to do. He says, you've seen what I've done, how I delivered you out of Egypt and carried you on eagle's wings to this place. And in this covenant, he says, I'm promising to you, you will be my treasured possession of people close to me. That in this covenant with me, in this union with me, you will be uh, a nation of people. A kingdom of priests who mediate my presence to the world. You will be a holy nation, actually holy and set apart for me. That God's essentially inviting his people into union with him. And there's a relationship where they will rule his world together like king and queen. They will bring his kingdom to bear out to the nations. God's inviting them into union with him. And so he starts with this proposal. And we also see here the significance of consent that in verse 8 it says all the people answered together as if with one voice they said yes right they said yes to the marriage proposal now this consent is significant jewish thinkers throughout history have reflected on the significance of this they saw uh, themselves as a people represented in their ancestors back at mount sinai that israel entered this covenant willingly they were not kidnapped or forced or coerced into this relationship but rather willingly said yes we want this relationship with you god we want to enter into union with you in this covenant consent is crucial to marriage Uh, this may seem obvious to to us today but it was maybe less so historically in many times and places where often uh, when someone was getting married their family had a much bigger role and even extended family and they, there could be other political or economic reasons for a marriage for children who were uh, often even younger than we would consider normal for us today in our time and place. And so in the Jewish tradition in Judaism, it was significant that daughters and sons had a significant voice in needing to bring consent and their own voice to whether or not to be married. This is carried forward in uh, Christian tradition and even the, the legal tradition influenced by Christianity and saying that if there was not consent, then a marriage could be annulled, that it was not legitimate without the consent. And the reason why consent is so significant is because it's modeled on a God who does not coerce us into relationship with us, but invites us and invites our willing consent entering into union with him. This raises an important question. Are you in Christianity because you, were, you committed or because you were coerced, right? Like maybe nobody had a gun to your head, but it still could have been under duress, right? Like perhaps you grew up in the church and there was a sense of pressure to appease or to please your family, parents. Or perhaps you grew up recognizing a certain cultural Christianity in our environment today and the pressure of of going, man, there are perks, actually, if I identify with Jesus in this thing. It may be that this may be the only way I can get that girl's parents to allow me to date her. Or maybe I'm in real estate. I know there's a bunch of potential clients if I show up here on Sunday, right? (laughs) Or maybe you are even trying to prove your own righteousness to yourself. Like I'm good enough. I'm okay enough. I can be validated before God and others in my community. And this morning, if that's you, I want to let you off the hook, right? Like if you said yes under duress, I want to give you the freedom today to walk away. That God's not interested in a relationship built off of pressure or coercion or intimidation. God wants all of us, but he wants us willingly. And if that's the case, it's not so much like you're getting a divorce from God, it's more like an annulment of recognizing, man, the consent was never really there to begin with. This was never really a legitimate marriage to begin with. So for some of us, that may be the case, but for others of us, Maybe you haven't yet heard the proposal. There is a power to the proposal when the creator of the universe gets down on one knee and says, I want to invite you into union with myself. God gives a grandiose gesture, a grand, great proposal. I am struck by how we often in our culture we love like the extravagant wedding proposals. Right. Like, these are the videos that go viral. Uh, when my friends and I were dating back in the day, like, I remember we had kind of a competition to see who could give the most outlandish or out-of-the-box or creative extravagant proposal, and I've been told I won. Uh, <laughs> that's a story for another time. But I think one of the reasons we love these extravagant proposals is because they're a window into the God who is extravagantly proposed to us in Christ. That ultimately it is at the cross where God has come in Christ and he lays down his life. He not only gets down on one knee, he lays down his life and spreads his arms open in the invitation of embrace. Giving himself for us. Saying, I will bring you out of the land of sin and slavery and death. But not only that, I will bring you into life in union with me. And forever, I will be faithful to you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you. There's no fear in my love. I will never abuse, abandon, or betray you i'm with you come thick or thin come hell and high water the cross shows how far i'm willing to go to be with you to the grave and back it's the most extravagant proposal the world's ever seen right? the invitation is to enter into union with god all right well israel says yes and what happens in the rest of chapter 19 is god since she says all right let's do this so you guys go get ready, take three days, and for three days, uh, prepare yourselves. Get ready for the ceremony, get ready for the covenant ceremony, consecrate yourselves, and no one can touch the holy mountain, right? So, uh, three days now, on the third day, I'm going to come down, and you guys come up, we'll meet in the middle on the mountain, and this covenant will be, we'll enter into this covenant together, this union. So, you can imagine that image of consecrating and preparing yourself, uh, like Israel is like the bride getting ready for the day, getting all prepared and the makeup on and whatever else, and ready, the dress, and getting ready for the day. And in Jewish wedding ceremonies, they had what's called the mikvah. Uh, and this was a special kind of sacred bath that the groom and the bride would use to prepare themselves and kind of washing and cleansing and consecrating themselves for the ceremony, like Israel does here in this scene. And for the week or so before the wedding, they were not allowed to see each other. They could not touch the holy mountain, so to speak, right? So, uh, but they're waiting, and it's building the anticipation for the big day where they come together and say their vows and enter into union together. And this is where, in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments appear. And the Ten Commandments are like wedding vows. Like, sometimes we can think of these as just sort of a a list of to-dos and regulations from a distant lawgiver who's just trying to give us a bunch of hoops to jump through to keep him happy. But that's not the picture. Israel understood these much more like wedding vows. As a matter of fact, in Jewish wedding ceremony, they modeled their vows off of these tablets, like the commandments at Sinai. That the vows are a vision for a life based on love. Vows are almost kind of like the ultimate DTR right like define the relationship defining hey this is what I'm committing to you this is what you're committing to me so that we can enter into life and union together to safeguard the flourishing of our relationship and our communion with one another and the vows are pretty simple don't cheat on me with other lovers aka false gods or idols Uh, remember to rest we can celebrate life together the Sabbath Uh, honor your parents don't lie cheat murder or steal keep your heart devoted to me God says and let's live together forever There is a difference between treating the law as a ladder versus a love letter. The ladder, it's like we want to use the law to try and perform for God and show him that we're good enough and climb up to uh, get to him and impress him and display how great we are. But the love letter is a response. The law is a a way to live in response to the God who's come down the ladder, who's come to deliver us and enter into life with us. Now, as you begin reading in the, the chapters after this, we get a whole bunch of detailed laws. And it would be rad if we had more time to kind of dive into some of the intricacies of, of each one. Um, but I do want to point you to, there's a podcast that we recorded here on our Redemption Tempe podcast uh, with a buddy of mine, a guy named Tim Mackey from the Bible Project a few weeks ago. And it's on our podcast, and it's— we we went deeper into the law. I'm looking at some of the specific laws and some of the ones that are challenging for us and how to think about the the law and understand the law. So I'd encourage you to go take advantage of that. It's on our podcast feed from October 27th uh, under the title of the Decalogue, uh, which is a fancy way of saying the Ten Commandments. Um, So feel free to go check that out as a great resource to dig a little deeper. But big picture here, we find that the Ten Commandments are a law of love. When Jesus says greatest command is to love God and love your neighbor. He's not inventing a new one. he's reciting an ancient one. This was Deuteronomy's summary of the Ten Commandments. Think about that first tablet, the first five commands. the first tablet of the law is more focused on loving God well like no gods, no idols, Sabbath to worship and rest with him. Uh, the second tablet is more focused on loving your neighbor well. If you're murdering him or stealing from him, you're probably not doing a good job loving him, right? And so loving God and loving neighbor is a summary of the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are seen as a summary for the law as a whole, like all 600 and whatever of them, right? And so God's vision in the law is actually for a life based on love, for the flourishing of our life with him and with one another. (coughs) This means that with God, you know, the goal is not so much he's not, His ultimate endgame in bringing Israel to the mountain was not so much to give her a bunch of laws. It was to give her himself. And for us, as we look at the law and the way of Jesus and the practices he gives us and the the ways that he calls us to follow him, these aren't ways to try and get God to like you. They're ways to live because God likes you. Because God has come for us and is saying, I want to safeguard the flourishing of our life together. I want to set guardrails so you know uh, like when you're when you're heading towards danger zone, right? Like when you're driving, you hit those little bumps on the side of the road and let you know, oh, I'm going a direction that could end in destruction. It's like, dude, get back on the path so that we can have a healthy life where our communion together, God with his people, is safeguarded in a life based on love. Okay, well, let's go to Exodus 32. So you have Exodus 19 and 20, and then there's a whole uh, section of laws. And then Exodus 32, we get to the next major narrative portion of Scripture, the next, uh, next major story here. And it says this, starting in <coughs> verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods, you shall go before us. I like to think of this as the affair on the honeymoon, right? The golden calf incident is like an affair on the honeymoon. Like, if you think about it, they just, the last story, the last narrative scene, they just said yes to the covenant. They just said, yes, God, all these things we'll do, we'll enter into command And here at the foot of the mountain, they're breaking the first two commands. No other gods, no idols. It's almost like God and his people get hitched. And then they're on the honeymoon, and God's like, hey, I'm going to head down to 7-Eleven, get some drinks and some snacks, whatever, you know. And then kind of comes back to the hotel room and, like, whoo, like, finds his spouse in bed with someone else, right? That's kind of the picture here. Like, what are you doing? We just said yes at the altar, right? This is like an affair on the honeymoon. Uh, John Stalehammer, an Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, just at the moment when God was giving Moses the law on Mount Sinai, Israel was breaking it at the foot of the mountain." Israel had just heard the Ten Commandments. God had commanded that they not bow down to idols or have other gods. Yet, just then, Israel had fashioned a golden idol and was bowing down to it. Do you ever feel like you just saw God move in your life and you blow it before you know it? (laughs) Like you just re-upped your commitment to God, like, God, I'm all in. And the very next thing you know, you fall flat on your face. Maybe you just got baptized, and then on the drive home, you lose your temper and you're yelling at your kids, right? Maybe you just came back from that marriage retreat, and within a week, you're looking at something on the computer that you know you're not supposed to. Maybe God just brought you out of addiction to drugs, and shortly after, you find yourself self-righteous and judgmental towards people who are right where you were not long before. Maybe God healed you from that chronic pain, and yet you find yourself stuffing your body with junk food that can lead you right back to the place you were at before. Maybe you just heard God call you his child, and you saying, I am who you say I am. My identity is in God. And the very next thing, you turn around and trying to prove that you're beautiful enough or good enough or successful enough on Instagram so all the world can see and validate, like, I'm okay, right? So often... Right after God moves in our life, we can turn and go right back to the ways we living before. Now, the good news, though, is that the gospel is grace from start to finish, from A to Z. That God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. Because when we do that, we can get in the spot of going, man, I blew it. Uh, this, I, I'm just not cut out for this. I'm just, uh, we, we can get focused on ourself and spiritual gaze, our own spiritual belly button, and just kind of vo- move away from God. And the reality is it's an opportunity to press back into the grace and goodness of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians, have you who started by grace, have you now worked, moved to works? Like who has bewitched you? That what started in the power of the Spirit, you're now seeking to accomplish in the flesh. That it's an invitation to come back to our first love. One of the powerful things we see here in Exodus is that even after this affair on the honeymoon, God remains committed to his people, pursuing and coming after them. Now, this scene, this is a temptation fall narrative. This is that, you know, the people saw that Moses was gone, still on the mountain, so they took their gold. And they gave it to Aaron, the high priest, to make them a golden calf. In this language of saw, took, gave, this is a motif. It's a pattern throughout the Bible. It shows up all over the place. It's like a temptation fall pattern. So one of the most famous examples that um, we're all probably familiar with is Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, the story of the fall of humanity, where Eve uh, saw that the fruit looked good and desirable. So she took it and ate it, and then she gave it This pattern shows up over and over again. God has just given himself to Adam and Eve, to his people. uh, And now, like the very next scene, like it's a temptation and a fall from grace. Uh, We see this over and over and over again, but another famous example is Abraham and Sarah in in Genesis 16, where now God has uh, called them to himself. He's given them this covenant, this promise. He's entered into this covenant with them. And then the very next thing, God said, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a child and all. In the very next scene, Sarah saw that she still had no children. And so she took Hagar, her servant, and she gave her to Abraham. And they abuse and mistreat their servant in order to get, try and fulfill the promise, not on God's terms, but on their own terms. It's a temptation fall narrative that comes just after God's faithfulness in the covenant. And... It's uh, this a picture where now Sarah is like, you know, is in the position of Eve, and Hagar is like the fruit that she's taking, she's tempted by, and Abraham is like a new Adam. Now here in this Exodus scene at Mount Sinai, we have this scene where now uh, Israel, the bride of Yahweh, is in the position like Eve, and the gold that they take is like the fruit from the garden. And Aaron, the high priest, is like this new Adam that is given gold and creates this golden calf, this idol. This is a picture of a temptation and a fall from grace. Right? And yet, God's grace still pursues and comes after his people. Yet it doesn't come easy. God's response to the scene shows the seriousness of sin. Seriousness of sin. God, if you keep reading through Exodus 32 and 33, God essentially says uh, these couple movements. His first movement, he's like, man, I want to kill him. The next movement is, all right, I'll just abandon them. And then the next movement is, okay, I'll go with them, right? And God's response here sounds a lot like a scorned lover, right? Like one who founds out that they've been cheated on. I want to kill him. Okay, I'll just abandon him. Okay, I'll go with them. Uh, walking through many through the pain of adultery over the years, I found this is a common response. And if that's you, it's, it's, it's okay. Like it's an appropriate response to such a horrendous violation of the covenant. The anger that one feels is an appropriate response. Now, of course, there's what we do with that anger that's important, uh, that we act in Christ-like ways, but there's an appropriateness to the anger at the violation of the covenant. And so in this scene, God starts, oh my gosh, I can't believe it, like I want to kill him. And and Moses is like, well, God, don't do that because your reputation amongst the nations and remember the covenant. God's like, you're right, okay, so uh, I won't kill him. I'm just going to abandon Like, I'll give them the alimony, they can go on their own way, and I'll send someone with them to take care of them, but I can't go with them, or I could consume them, you know? And, God, and Moses is like, "Well, no, if your presence doesn't go with us, how will we survive? The whole point of this thing is that we're with you. And God's like, okay, I'm going to go with my people. Now, I don't think God's just being flip here. I don't think that he's just flying off the handle, or oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I think God knows from the very beginning what he's going to do. But this narrative interaction with Moses, it lets us in on something. It lets us in on this tension in the covenant between God's justice and his mercy. Between the reality that our sin has unleashed this destruction in our relationship with God. And yet God's mercy that he is within his covenant, he is faithful to his word. He is committed to us as his people. And so there's this patience of God and this uh, righteousness of God. And ultimately, this tension between God's justice and mercy will ultimately be resolved in the cross, where God himself comes to bear the weight of his justice against the destructive power of our sin in order to show mercy and unite us and to fulfill the covenant that we could be forever in union with him. Why did Israel make the golden calf? Now, we're not exactly told their motive, but if I can speculate a bit, I have to suspect that it may have been fear. It says that Israel, when they saw that Moses was still on the mountain, like, you're taking a long time, dude. Come back down, right? And if you can think about it, they're in the wilderness. Like, where are we going to, how are we going to be provided for? They're surrounded. There could be hostile nations that could come and attack them. So they're feeling their vulnerability. And the fear is God has abandoned us he's left us out here to die and I would suggest that what you worship is most clearly visible when you're afraid like what is it that you clutch after when you're scared I think some of us reach out for the remote control to like just kind of zone out on Netflix or whatever like with entertainment Uh, some of us maybe you know reach for the whiskey bottle substances Uh, some of us grasp for, maybe it's more like uh, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, or fitness, get the endorphins going. Some of us cling to a political identity, like as Republican or Democrat, and put all our eggs in one of those baskets. Now, it's not that those are all bad things, but they all make bad gods. That a lot of them are actually can be good things, but that we take and we displace God by making them ultimate things. That we look to them like Israel going, this is my deliverance. This is what has brought me out and will bring me through to the other side. It's interesting to me that Israel gave their gold. Like the golden calf wasn't made out of like paper mache or crumpled up newspapers. Or you know, like, like you will give a lot for your sin, right? Like idols are expensive. They require and demand a lot from their followers. And I think maybe often for us today, the most expensive, valuable thing that we commit to the things that we worship may not even be our money. It may be our time. The things that, man, time is a commodity, and especially today in our fast-paced, hurry, hurry, hurry world, the things that you devote your time to can be one of the greatest places you lavish, one of the most extravagant things you have to give. And as the people of God, he's inviting us to make him ultimate. Yeah, we can rejoice in the good things but not to make them ultimate and displace him. I believe God wants to mature us and grow us to a place where when we're scared and we're afraid, moving us from what can I take to who can I trust, right? Where the question is not what can I take to kind of alleviate my anxiety in this situation right now, but who can I trust? I can trust the God who's committed himself to me in Christ and who is faithful. That the mark of Christian maturity is, Growing to the point where we can say, God, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you in the midst of this cancer. Jesus, I trust you as my kids are falling apart. Jesus, I trust you for that class I worked so hard to prepare and that I still didn't pass. Jesus, I trust you here in this unemployment line. Jesus, I trust you for that person I loved so badly and couldn't stop them from leaving. Jesus, I trust you. Because here in this valley of the shadow, like, my hope is not in my circumstances, but in your promise. Like, it's not in my power to change these things, but it's in your presence that goes with me. That you are with me, you go with me through this valley, and you will be with me to see me through to the other side. And if that's the case, that means that I can hope that we can hope in kind of the highlands, the mountaintop, the good spots, and we can hope in the low places, the heartache, and the places of pain. Jesus, we can trust you when you give, and we can trust you when you take away, because there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. Amen? Well, at the end of the day, I believe God is inviting us into a law of love. God is inviting us into a law of love. That Jesus says in John 14, if you you love me, you will obey my commands. There is an obedience, a type of obedience to the law that's driven by love. And this can be difficult for us today because in our culture, in our society, we often pit law and love against one another. We often see them as contradictory, as opposed to each other. And so for some of us, some of us opt for law without love, right? Some of y'all, some of you are a servant, a taskmaster. Some of you are like working for Jeff Bezos, right? Where it's all about productivity and efficiency and getting the most that you can out of yourself. And so, uh, you know, the reality is there are some perks to living this way, right? Like there's a good salary and benefits. Um, you've got, you know, life works well for you if you obey. The law, the ways of God, the way things are supposed to go, whatever your motives are, you're working with the grain of the universe. The challenge, though, is that in our heart, we can grow distant from the purpose behind the law and the God that we were made to serve. The law can become a means of going, hey, look at me, or God, look what I'm doing for you. Look how much I'm doing for you. And that productivity can become a new pharaoh that's saying more bricks, more bricks, more bricks never enough. You think about, uh, like, in a marriage, it's possible to, like, not cheat and not commit adultery, those kind of, you know, not run away, that kind of thing, and yet, you can be in the same room with your spouse, and yet it's still like you're a million miles away. There can be a great distance, even when you're in the same room. I think similarly with God, we can be around Jesus, we can be kind of, you know, come into church on Sunday, be a part of a redemption community, and we're around and yet in our heart, we can be far, far away. I believe Jesus' invitation this morning is to come back to the heart of the story. Come back to the romance of the gospel. To the God who's inviting us to live not so much by duty as devotion, as so much obligation as rather affection and intimate communion with him. All right, well, some of us, it's not love with, it's not law without love. For some of us, we lean more towards love without law, right? Like we're not working for Jeff Bezos, we're working for Jeff Lebowski, the dude in the big Lebowski, right? Uh, The big Lebowski, this movement where, uh, this movie where uh, he's like, the dude abides, right? Hey man, everything's cool. It's sort of more the hippie, laid back, passive, like it's all good, everything's gonna be fine, like you do you, like we can picture God that way. And when uh, God says, Yahweh, uh, my name is Yahweh, I am. I exist. We can read that as like, God abides. Like, he's just hanging back. Dude, it's all good. We do you. We're fine, you know? And yet, that's not what Yahweh means. It's not a passive hanging back. It means I exist. I am the ground of all existence. I am actively holding you together. I am actively pursuing you and coming after you. I am actively out to reconcile and restore all things to myself. I have actively given you my law and my ways, my practices, kind of my vision for the world to give you a framework for you to live in and thrive and flourish and be a part of life with me. I've given it to protect you from those things that would pull you away from me. That one of the purposes of the law, it's like a fatherly instruction. Father to his children. I want to train you and guide you in the ways to live, the ways that lead to life. It's like the vows made on a wedding day. Go in, this is a vision for our life together. What we're, what we're, the way to enter into life actually leads to communion and intimacy. And set some guardrails on those things that can distract or pull us away from each other. God's invitation is an obedience that's driven by love. It's the law of love. I think of my kids. I, you know, I have two kids. I have three kids. I, don't, I didn't forget the third, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I have two that are relevant to this story, and uh, yeah. one tends to have perfect behavior, it is uh, you know great on great at school, great at following the rules, great all those things, but can be driven sometimes by a certain anxiety, right? Like there can be a, am I doing everything right? Am I getting all there? I have another who's a little more like a cyclone, like a holy cyclone, just tearing everything. Uh, or down that comes into contact with, right? And the reality is, as a father, yes, you, you parent your children in different ways, appropriate to each child, but the reality is, a father, sometimes I think Christianity, it's like we, we hold up the one, as like this is good and this is bad. The reality is a father for both my children as they grow older, I want them to grow into the love of the father. And for one, that might mean they need to grow into the acceptance they have in me, despite their performance. The other they might need to grow in dude following these ways that i, I don't want your life to you know like like, <laughs> like but for both like it's this vision for the law of love given by a father who loves their children and and i think for some of us the, the the implications or application may be different depending on where you're at like spectrum some of us might need to grow into the beauty of god's law and his ways and some of us might need to grow into the heart of God that's for us and towards us but the invitation is to an obedience that's driven by love <clears throat> and it starts with seeing how beautiful God is like this is a God who has gone all the way to deliver us who has brought us out of our egypts and into life with him We can look to Jesus who loved us first when we were his enemies before we first loved him and he was given himself to us. Jesus obeyed his father perfectly because he loved his father perfectly. And in him, we get to grow in that same love of the father and obedience to the ways of his kingdom together. It's the invitation this morning as we come to the table, as we come to Christ's body broken and his blood shed, we come to Jesus, our exodus, That Jesus is our deliverer who has brought us out of the land of sin and slavery and death and is bringing us into union with him in his life and his kingdom. Jesus is our Passover lamb who sacrificed himself and laid down his life to cover us in his blood and redeem us and mark us out for life in his kingdom. Jesus is the one who parts the waters who through his resurrection from the grave has parted the waters of of the grave and of death in order to bring us with him into his resurrection life. Jesus is the manna from heaven. He is the one who feeds us. He is the bread who has come down from heaven to feed us in our wilderness wanderings as we journey on our way to the promised land of his kingdom. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the hot spot of God's presence dwelling on earth as in heaven so that we could dwell together with God At our center, Jesus is our great high priest who actually represents us before God better than Aaron who made the golden calf, right? Who leads us faithfully and represents God to us. And Jesus is the sacrifice. When we read of the sacrifices and things here in this section of the Bible, that ultimately they point us towards this table to Christ who gave himself for us to atone for our sin and reconcile us. And so the invitation this morning is to come to Jesus, our exodus, whose goal is not just to get us out of the bad stuff, it's to get us into the good stuff, which is life with him, a life based on the obedience of love and union with him forever. Just join me in prayer. Jesus, you are our exodus. Thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your giving of yourself for your faithfulness even when we've been unfaithful. God, I pray that you would grow us, Holy Spirit, to be a people who even when we're afraid, even when circumstances seem fearful, that we would not clutch after idols but we would trust in you. We declare this morning, Jesus, we do. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with everything we have and everything we are. God, I pray that um, there are any here this morning where there are things that have been hindering them. Maybe they've been living uh, a life of the law, but without the love, God, a life of performance and trying to please you, and maybe doing the duties and living the religious life, but their heart feels numb and dead or dry and far away. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would communicate your affection, the affection of the Father for his children, the affection of the great groom for us as his bride. Make it real in our hearts. God, if there are any of us who have been living a life of uh, kind of just love without law, God, just going all out after whatever we want, but God, not realizing that we're on a road that's heading to destruction. God, I pray Holy Spirit, enliven our minds with the beauty of your way, the path of righteousness, God, that we would see it as a not not a hoops to jump through, God, but a way that leads to life. And Father, I pray that In all of this, that we would enter into deeper communion with you as your people. Again, we would not only be drawn out of the bad stuff, God, out of our Egypts, but into union and life with you at ever deeper and deeper levels for your kingdom and for your glory. Amen.